1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In these things, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And you can be seated. So I just want to remind you again this morning, as I have for the last few weeks, that the gospel message that we have, you guys, is powerful. It is of incredible power. It has the power to transform lives. It has the power to raise the dead, to reconcile filthy sinners to a holy God. It has the ability to make rebels into sons and Jews and Gentiles into one new man, his spiritual creation. Paul says in Romans 1.16, it is the power of God unto salvation. It's also the power of God unto sanctification. You realize that you don't become more Christ-like by, by leaving the gospel behind and, and studying all sorts of other theology. Actually, you become more like Christ when you understand the gospel message more, when you understand the depths of our need for the grace of God in the cross and the power of the resurrection life. That's what makes us more like Jesus. We're constantly in need of being reminded of the gospel truths we probably all know that the gospel is power men, powerful mentally we we get that the problem is that we forget it and the problem is that we often do things functionally speaking that undermine the powerful message of jesus christ and we'll trade it for something else this is a danger in every generation is that we trade the gospel for something else we would still say we hold the gospel but we're going to trade it for something that maybe seems like it's more effective it's true in every, every generation. There's some new teaching guru or whatever that thinks that he can win the lost better. There's some new teaching, new technique, new church growth guy, evangelism curriculum. All that in the name of Jesus actually undermines Jesus because it undermines 
the power of the simple gospel message. They, they would say, well, actually what we want to do is we want to reach more people for Jesus, but they are, in fact, undermining the cross. And so they'd say stuff like, well, well don't talk about sin or, or don't talk about it very much because that, that might offend people. Well, why do you need a gospel if you don't have any sin? Don't talk about Jesus being crucified and suffering on a cross or, or the blood of the cross. That's, that's kind of gross. We'll get to that, just not yet. But when do you get to that? When, when do you get to that message? And is that just a bait and switch? And a lot of times it is. What Paul says here in chapter 2 goes against like every church growth book ever written. It goes against almost every youth ministry that is out there for, for kids. It goes against many popular missions philosophies that are out there. Because the bottom line of what Paul says in chapter 2 is that what people need more than anything else, any other philosophy, any other morality, they need the gospel. They just need the pure gospel. That's the only thing that will transform their lives. That's it. This is so important. Our unbelieving family, friends, neighbors, whoever, they, they don't primarily need a better handle on their finances. They don't primarily need a better understanding or philosophy to live by. They don't need a better understanding even of gender roles, though many of them do. That's not their primary need in life. Their primary need in life is to repent from their sin, turn from their sin, and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. They need the bloody gospel of Jesus Christ to transform them. And that's what we're, where we're at here with Paul. So we saw back in chapter 1, kind of the, the, the last half, we saw that the word of the cross, the gospel is foolishness to the unbelieving world. To non-Christians, the gospel is foolishness. Why would God sacrifice his own son, who is also divine, to save filthy sinners? Why would they do that? Why would God do that? So the, the gospel message is foolishness. And then we saw a little bit later in chapter 1 that God usually chooses the losers in life. He chooses the poor. He chooses those who are not high up on the social ladder. And so then when we get to chapter 2, we get to the, the principle that, well, if that's the case, if the gospelness is foolishness to those who are unbelieving anyway, and God chooses the losers anyway, then we should just present it as it is. We should just preach it as it is. The Spirit doesn't need our fancy rhetoric to wake people from the dead. The Spirit just needs us to faithfully go preach the gospel message. That's all he needs. That's all he needs. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're actually just going to walk through most of chapter 2. We're going to get through the first 13 verses, and we'll pick up the, the next verses next week. Um, we're, we're not in a rush, but I think it's going to be helpful for us to see sort of the flow of Paul's argument here. We've laid a pretty good foundation in chapter 1, and so I think the flow of chapter 2 will make a little bit more sense if we just kind of keep rolling with it. So, since the gospel is foolishness to the world, and since God usually just saves the losers of society, the first point then we see is that God does not need fancy preachers. God does not need fancy preachers. He doesn't need you to be fancy. He doesn't need me to be fancy. He needs us to be faithful. He needs us to be faithful. Take a look at verses 1 through 5 again. This is the Apostle Paul. This is how he came to Corinth and preached the gospel. Look at this. He says, verse 1, And I, when I came to you brothers, when he first started that church, he said, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so the first point here is that God just does not need fancy preachers. Now that might seem a little bit obvious from from what we saw a couple weeks ago in, in chapter one, that God does not save the worldly wise. He doesn't save the worldly influential. He doesn't save the worldly rich, at least not usually with those. So, so if it's the nobodies that are coming to faith in Jesus, who's preaching the gospel? It's the nobodies, right? So the nobodies are preaching this powerful gospel message and nobodies are coming to faith in Jesus. So if you feel like a nobody in the kingdom, if you feel like you just don't fit, like God's got you exactly where he wants you. He's using you. This is his plan to use people who are weak and who are not influential to proclaim his glory. Now, here's what's a little weird. Paul says, I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. But what do we know about Paul? He was actually a pretty well-renowned scholar of the time. He was a he was a Jewish rabbi. He was a Pharisee. He wasn't a nobody. He was a rising star in Judaism. Of anybody that we would expect to go and preach with wisdom and lofty speech, we would think that it would be Paul. He could speak eloquently, and he could rival the the wisdom of the philosophers. So, you know, when he comes across worldly people out there, maybe the philosophers would be like, oh, we got Paul on our side. It's on. Paul's going to snow you with all of his education and his history and his theology. He's just going to unload on you with his staggering intellect. He's going to baffle all of these people with his mind of of, uh, history and theology. But that's not what he did, is it? No, he says, when I came to you, I didn't preach the gospel with any of that. He didn't give grand speeches. He just gave him Jesus. That's all it was. Verse 2. He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So here's the most well-trained Jewish theologian and preacher in Rome. And he basically says, I'm not playing your game about who's smartest. I'm just not going down that road. You want wisdom? I'm not giving you wisdom. No dice. All I want to do is talk to you about Jesus. I just want to walk you through the simple gospel message that he died for your sins. He rose again for your justification. He ascended into heaven, and that's where he reigns. He's coming back to judge. And if you follow him, if you believe in him, your sins will be forgiven. Now, when he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, it doesn't mean he played dumb about other matters, like that he just didn't know. We know from Paul's writings and even from reading through the book of Acts that he engaged people on a lot of different issues. He was very well versed in Greek philosophy and all kinds of different theology. But what he means here is he never ventured too far from the simple gospel message. He didn't get too far. He didn't get lost in the weeds. You ever have those conversations with unbelievers and they take you off on some rabbit trail and you are out in the middle of nowhere and you're like, why are we even talking about this stuff? I thought we were talking about Jesus. Paul said, no, I, I didn't play that game. I didn't, get, I didn't go on the long rabbit trail. And I just kept bringing it back to Jesus. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is there a place to talk about some of that stuff? Sure. Is it usually helpful? Not usually. Not usually. Because it takes the focus off of Christ. And that's what he means by Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't just 
go into town and repeat Jesus Christ and him crucified over and over again. That's not what he said. He just didn't stray too much from the simple gospel message and from showing people the simple gospel message from the Bible. In fact, look back at Acts 18. I know we've looked here several times already. Uh, We're going to look at Acts 18 all throughout our venture through 1 Corinthians. By the time we're done, I hope you will have memorized that Acts 18 is where Paul visited Corinth, that you kind of have to know Acts 18 to understand the context of Corinth. But we come here to help us understand this context. So he says, when I first came to you, brothers, I didn't didn't, um, come to you with lofty speech or wisdom, but just Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, actually, we have an account of exactly what he did when he came to them. So, So let's look at this account, just the first 11 verses of Acts 18. So after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And it's about 30 miles away from like from here to Chewila, something like that. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he's on a mission. He's teaching. He's helping people understand the Bible. That's what he's, that's what he's getting at. He's arguing over it. Look at verse 5. But this is his goal. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's trying to get them to understand from the Old Testament that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He's the Christ. Verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So, so it's not like Paul just like went into a synagogue every Saturday and just yelled out, hey, Jesus Christ and him crucified, figure that out. No, he actually reasoned from the scriptures. There was, there was dialogue, there was exegesis, there was, there was understanding and interpreting the appropriate passages. That's what he was doing. He was going through the whole Old Testament and he was trying to help people understand this verse and that verse and this verse, how they relate to Jesus. That was his main point. And you guys know that Christ and Messiah, they're, they're the same concept. It's just somebody who has been anointed by God, a chosen one of God. That's what the Jews were, were looking for. They were looking for the Messiah, the Christ, who had been chosen by God to deliver the people. That's what we say when we say that Jesus is the Messiah. But what Paul is laboring to do is to show them from the Bible, the Old Testament at the time, that this is who Jesus is. That his death and his resurrection were part of the plan of God for the Messiah. The Jews didn't anticipate the death and resurrection of Jesus. The apostles didn't even see that coming, even though Jesus told them about it. But Paul had to show them from the scriptures. And he's saying, hey, he's the one, you guys. 
He had to be crucified. Why? Why did Jesus die? For sins. And so he shows him Isaiah 53 or wherever. And he walks him through the whole process. That's what he did with the Jews. By the way, this is also what he did with the Greeks. Look up in chapter 17. He just got done in Athens preaching the gospel to all these pagans. In verse 32 of chapter 17. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, talking about Jesus, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And I'll, I'll let you read chapter 17 in your own time, but, but Paul's sermon starts around verse 22. So from 22 to 32, 10 verses, Paul gets to the creator God who is sending someone to judge. That person died and rose again. And unless you believe in him, you'll face the wrath of God. Ten verses, Paul gets to the gospel. He's not playing around with philosophy. He's not playing around with all of their, their lofty speech and rhetoric. The Greeks loved rhetoric. They loved a guy who could come in and they could preach and, and speak and, and whip them up and get them all excited. Ten verses. Now, this is a summary, but that's pretty fast to go from there's this pagan altar to an unknown God. And Paul's like, let me talk to you about the God you don't know. And he gets all the way to Jesus in 10 verses. That's pretty awesome. He doesn't mess around. He's not talking about dietary laws. He's not talking about morality per se. He's not talking about politics or social causes. We can talk about those things. But at the end of the day, what matters is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That he is the Lord. That he will reign. And he will judge. This is the person's biggest need. See, the unbelieving world thinks they know what they need. They think they know what they want. I, I cringe every time I hear Bono singing, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I'm like, dude, I got it. I know it. And Bono claims to be a Christian. I'm like, you should come out with a second song. Say, like, I found it. <laughs> you have. This is Jesus. This is what you need. This is what the world needs. We know that, even if the world doesn't know that. So let's look back at 1 Corinthians 2 again. And let me balance this out just a little bit. Paul says he doesn't preach the gospel or he didn't to the Corinthians with lofty speech or wisdom. But can I just say it's okay to actually preach the gospel with lofty speech and wisdom? That's not actually a bad thing. It's okay to preach it with eloquence. If you read Paul's letters and watch some of the other sermons that he gives throughout the book of Acts, you realize he's very polished. He's very logical. He's very persuasive. He speaks and he writes well. And I think it's okay for us to, to be able to, to give our testimony with the gospel included in it in a short amount of time. It just kind of comes off like, like that's okay. And it's okay to practice those things. It should be, um, it should be good. And although Paul was a physical train wreck, I mean, he was, he was short and he was bald. I can relate. He had bad eyesight. He had stammering of speech, all those things. It's okay also to be an attractive person and preach the gospel. That's not bad. The problem is, is when the person in front of you is demanding things. They demand that, that in order to hear you out, you have to speak in an elegant and rhetorically wise way. Or when they demand attractive people. You ever wonder why all those prosperity gospel people on, on TV are pretty? And they put makeup all over themselves? Because that's what the world wants to see. You go, no, let's put the ugliest guy up there who stammers and preach the gospel. And when people come to faith in Jesus, you know what that will show? It was the work of the spirit of God through the gospel. That's what it will show. 
That's what it'll show. Take a look at verses 3 and 4. He says as much. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So if Paul was our missionary, we probably would not give him a lot of money. He intentionally did not preach the gospel in a lofty way. He didn't come off as very confident. He had been beaten. He goes from town to town, and he's been beaten. In fact, if you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you get this list of all of the things he had to endure. Five times he received the cat of nine tails, 40 lashes minus one. 39 times. His back would have been just a mess. He'd been stoned. He'd been shipwrecked. And he's not a guy you want to travel with. He says he was with the Corinthians in fear and trembling. That's phobos and traumas in the Greek, where we get phobia and trauma. Like, you ever been around a dog who's been beaten by their previous owner, and they just, they're just afraid? That, that's Paul. What, what's he going to endure at the next town? And what's he going to endure at the next town? And what's he going to endure at the next town? He's afraid. But he's spitting the gospel out anyway. And imagine the most disjointed sermon you've ever heard. And you're like, I don't even know how to take notes for this thing. It's so disjointed. Was the gospel in there? Yeah. Was it pretty? No. That was Paul. But here's Paul's point. Were people saved? And the answer is yes. And if God can take a broken apostle, physically beaten, and who can't even get the gospel out in plausible words of wisdom because he is afraid, and people come to faith in Jesus, what that shows is that the power is not in the preacher The power is in the gospel. It's in the salvation message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's where the power is. How is it possible? Verse 5, 4 and 5. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that, here's the reason why he did that, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is possible the people come to faith in Jesus despite a, 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 an ugly preacher and despite a not, not very smooth message because it's the gospel message itself that is everything. That's where the power is. It's in Jesus Christ in him crucified. And this has been his whole point the whole time. Guys, stop clamoring over your favorite leader. Stop clamoring over Cephas and Apollos and Paul. Don't clamor over Jason. Why? Because they're, no, they're all nothing. It's the gospel that is everything. And I think this is encouraging because when we preach the gospel, when we choke the gospel out, when someone asks us about our faith, our religion, our church, or whatever, and we kind of like disjointedly get something out, you could take courage. The Holy Spirit takes that and uses that for the glory of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be polished. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be pretty. All you have to do is get it out. That's all you have to do. God will take care of it from there. ESV says that when he came, or when they came to the faith, it was a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Really, in the original language, the idea is is together. It's a demonstration of the spirit's power. How does someone come to faith with a disjointed sermon and just some elements of the gospel? The spirit. The Spirit of God does it. 
I think this is one of the most encouraging passages for evangelism because I, I again, I, I just often wonder, am I doing evangelism right? Am I, am I bold enough? Am I not? Did I say too much? Did I say, oh my goodness, I forgot to tell them the Holy Spirit is God and I forgot to talk about the virgin birth and I left out all these things and I'm like, oh my goodness, are they ever going to come to faith in Jesus? Listen, get out what you can, the best you can. Is there room for improvement? Of course, there's always room for improvement. But get out the gospel message. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them what Jesus did for you and why you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And God will use that. God uses our messed up attempts to spit out the gospel and he saves people anyway. When I heard the, the gospel message the first time at summer camp, I am sure that my counselor did not take me through an entire theology book. I know there were elements missing, but I heard that God in his love had sent his son to die for me and to rise again. And if I believed in him and followed him, I would have forgiveness of sins. I wanted it. That's all I wanted it. That's all I knew. I didn't have all the fine points of theology, but God used that very basic gospel message and he saved a little 14-year-old kid. That's all we need is to preach Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul says about the gospel. Imagine, imagine you've got a friend who has a terminal illness. They're, they're right there. And you've got a syringe. And the, in this syringe is, is the cure. And it'll cure them right away. But you've never given anybody a shot ever. And you're like... I don't know. Do I, do I do it? What if I put it in wrong? What if, I, what if I break the needle off in there? You know what you do? You put the syringe in their skin and you give them the, the serum. And when they are healed, it's not you that takes any credit, is it? Because all the power is in the serum. That's the gospel that we have. We don't take any credit when we spit out the gospel. Don't take any credit because it's the spirit who works through the serum of the power of God in Christ. That's what Paul says. So when you're talking to your friends or family or campers or whatever about the gospel, stop beating yourself up that you didn't do it perfect. Just do the best you can. Get it out and let the spirit of God do the rest. He does not need fancy preachers. In fact, he seems to prefer messed up ones to get the gospel out. Point number two. This idea that God uses nobodies to preach the gospel message to nobodies and save them all, that was God's eternal plan the whole time. This is God's eternal plan. This is what we see in verses 6 through 9. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So it's kind of interesting. This section is like a side note to a side note in Paul's line of thinking, but it is important. It, Paul's been saying that he doesn't speak in words of eloquent wisdom. And then in verse 6, all of a sudden he says, but then we do impart wisdom. Well, what does that mean? Do you, do you speak in wisdom or, or do you not speak in wisdom? Which, which is it? Well, it's, it's a play on concepts. Remember this, this whole time, this last chapter, things have been upside down. The world thinks the gospel is foolishness, but the gospel is really wisdom. And so this, this is the upside down gospel to the mature, to those who are actually saved. 
not to mature Christians, but to those who are actually saved, that's his idea, we do impart this wisdom because it's wisdom to them. And we've seen this back and forth. Look, look back in chapter 1, verse 25. Remember this, this, this sort of upside-down gospel message. Verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So, so he's doing a play on concepts. The unbelievers think that the gospel is foolishness. He's like, well, it is foolishness to you, but to us it's wisdom, and that's what we're imparting. So that's what he's talking about back in chapter 2, verse 6. We do impart wisdom. We do impart the gospel to those who are actually mature, to those who are saved. Christianity is just this upside-down religion to the world. But this has been God's plan all along. This is something that God came up with before the world began. Verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. This is not like some weird theology that only like wise people know. This is, this is just the gospel that God held to himself until Jesus came on the scene. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So something that we need to understand is that the gospel we believe is not something that God just made up on the fly. God doesn't make up anything on the fly. He wasn't doing a social experiment in the Garden of Eden when he made Adam and Eve, and he's like, boy, I really hope they don't eat from that tree. He knew they were going to eat from the tree. In fact, he had decreed that they would eat from that tree. He knew that we would inherit a sin nature. In fact, he decreed that we would inherit a sin nature. He knew that Jesus would come, his own son, and be crushed for sins. In fact, he decreed that his own son would come and be crushed for sins. We have to understand it's not just that God knows the future, although he does, but what we see here is that God has decreed the future. He has planned the future. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. That's the gospel, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This whole plan of God, from everything from the garden all the way to the new heavens and new earth, has, has been planned by God for our glory. God didn't just know they were going to happen and sort of nudge him in the right direction. No, God decreed that all of this would go on. In fact, the NIV says God destined it for our glory before time began. This was the eternal plan of God all along. Fall of man and the need of salvation through his own son, Jesus Christ. So in, in, in eternity past, God is, God is thinking, you know what? I'm going to save a whole bunch of people through faith in my son, who I'm going to send, because they're all sinners, and they can't save themselves. They don't have eternal life in themselves. They need someone to do the work for them, to take the punishment for them. And then he enacts the plan. It's not just knowledge, although it is. It's also the plan. And it's these truths that the unbelieving world, they can't wrap their mind around. It doesn't make any sense for them. If it did make sense, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. But it didn't make sense to them. That's why they killed him. That's what Paul says. Had they understood this, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have murdered the Lord of glory, but they did. Verse 9 is sort of a loose quote from Isaiah 64, where it says, no, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Nobody could have, nobody could have put this together. Nobody could have imagined this in their own wisdom. Oh, yeah. God's... God's got this plan, and people are going to fail, and he's going to use all of that ultimately to his glory by dying for them and raising it. Like, nobody would have put that together. So even as it was unfolding, people were doubting. Even his own apostles doubted. 
until he revealed to them that this was the wisdom of God. So God doesn't need fancy preachers. And this gospel that we preach, this was God's plan all along. And so then we kind of have to ask ourselves, how is it that we came to believe in Jesus? If God saves nobody, like, why, why did we come? Why not somebody else? Why did you believe in Jesus? Why did I believe in Jesus? And the answer is the third point. The reason we believe in Jesus is because of the Holy Spirit. It's because of the Holy Spirit. If you go through chapter 2 and you count the times the Holy Spirit is mentioned, it's all over the place. This is the Holy Spirit chapter. We often think of it 12, 13, and 14 with the spiritual gifts. This is the Holy Spirit's work in salvation. We just need to understand that, that the reason anybody in here has ever trusted in Christ is because the Holy Spirit brought them back to life. We call this in theology regeneration, renewal. And this is all the work of the Spirit. Look at verses 10 through 16. Actually, just 10 through 13. So these things, talking about the gospel, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also nobody comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So, so the idea here is that nobody knows what God's plan is except the Spirit. Just like nobody really knows what's in your heart except your own spirit. Same, same idea. And so what the Spirit of God does is he takes God's eternal plan and he helps us to understand it. And he helps us to love it and embrace it and believe it. That's what the Holy Spirit does at the, at the point of regeneration, at the point of salvation. A lot of people know the information of the gospel message. Why do some believe it and some not? Because the Spirit makes it palatable, palatable to them. Makes them love it. Makes them rejoice in it. It's been revealed by the Spirit. It's not just that we know the information of the gospel. It's that he changes our desires and our affections, right? He takes out that heart of stone and he puts in that heart of flesh. He raises the dead bones to life and puts sinews and flesh and blood all over them. That's what the, the Holy Spirit does. When I was at the master's college, uh, this is how nerdy Bible college kids are, by the way. When I was at the master's college, uh, we got made fun of by kids from other colleges because we didn't believe in the charismatic gifts for the most part so they would joke that we thought that the trinity was the father son and holy scriptures right and we don't even need the spirit that couldn't be further from the truth because because the the biggest manifestation of the glory of the spirit is not in the gifts it's actually in regeneration it's actually in salvation when we understand rightly the work of the spirit we understand that it is him that brings us into the faith. It is him that gives you faith. It is him that, that brings you into the family of God as an adopted son or daughter. And this is what we see in verse 10. These things, the gospel, these things God has revealed to us through who? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The reason you comprehend and you love the gospel is because God revealed that to you through the Spirit. This is the beauty of the gospel truths to the people of God. So when camp time rolls around, if you've got two campers who both hear the same gospel message, 
They both have heard all the truths. They've all had their objections. And one believes and the other does not. Do you know why? Because the Holy Spirit has brought one to life. And maybe he'll bring the other to life at a different time. But it's because of the Spirit. Look back at John. Jesus talks about this. John 6. Remember, in John 6, this is where Jesus is talking to this massive crowd of 5,000 men plus women plus children. He's talking to a stadium full of people. He just fed them all. And now he's preaching to them, and the truths are getting harder and harder the farther he goes along. Finally gets to this point where he says, unless you drink my blood and unless you eat my flesh, you cannot have eternal life. And they're like, we're done. We're not eating your blood. We're not drinking your flesh. And really what he's talking about is believing in him. That's what he's really talking, taking him in, imbibing him, believing in who he is. But that's a hard saying, and he's not explaining that all that clearly because he knows that these people just want him for the snack. That's really all they want him for. And so he's saying hard truths to basically sift out those who will believe and those who, won't, who are not. So in verse 60 of John chapter 6, this is in the aftermath of when he says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Just, just chew on my body and you'll live forever. And then everybody's like, yeah, we're out of here. So verse 60, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is a disgusting Jesus. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What about, what about when I go back into heaven? Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. This is exactly what Jesus says. You think, you think eating his flesh and drinking his blood is hard. Just, just take in the, the reality that, that you're not going to believe this and you're not going to understand this unless the Spirit gives you life according to the, the granting of the Father. The Spirit won't give life. That's pretty radical. But that's what Jesus says. The reason we believe, the reason we're in the family of God is because of the Holy Spirit. Look back at John 3. This is not the first time Jesus has ever talked about this. Remember the... The nighttime discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus. They're talking about spiritual birth and, and Nicodemus is like, I got to crawl back into my mom and then come back out again. What are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus basically says, no, actually, uh, spiritual birth is all up to the spirit. And he just kind of does whatever he wants to do, like the wind blows around. That's, that's basically what Jesus says. So take a look, John 3. Verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, I think that's just spiritual birth, that's what that's talking about, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then here it is. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Wow. How do you get born again? Nicodemus asks. Got to be up to the Spirit. The wind blows around. We don't know where it's coming. We don't know where it goes. That's how the Spirit is. He blows around. He gives life to whomever he wants. You got to be born of the water and the Spirit. How do you do that? It's just through the Holy Spirit. So it's up to the Spirit who receives life. And then Jesus, just to create all the tension that we need here, he says, you know what you need to do then? You need to believe in Jesus. You need to believe in me. Wait a minute, I thought it was the Spirit. Well, it is, but you got to believe in me. This is what we sang in Victory in Jesus, isn't it? Is it God working or is it us working? Well, we know it's God who has to bring us to life, but we're commanded to repent and believe. Look at verses 9 through 15. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? This is pretty crazy. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Here it is, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Wait a minute, Jesus, you just said it was the Spirit. Now you're telling me to believe. Yeah, that's how it works. The Spirit gives life. What do we call people to? Faith. Believe in Jesus. We go preach the gospel and tell people to repent from their sin and believe in Christ. And at the same time, it has to be the Spirit working through that serum of the gospel in their soul to bring them back to life. This is what the Bible teaches about the gospel. We go preach. We don't know who's going to believe. But it's the Spirit who gives life. And we think about this even when we're talking to unbelievers. Hey, I want to pray for you. That God would give you understanding. That God would open your heart to hear the... What are we asking God to do? We're asking him to work spiritually in them, aren't we? That they would understand and know the gospel message. Look back really quick at 1 Corinthians 2. This is kind of a cool little section toward the end here. We saw in verse 10 where the Spirit reveals these truths to us, but it's the Spirit who has to interpret these truths to us, to, to, to reveal them and, and help them help us to understand them spiritually. Look at verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So again, it has to be the Spirit of God who takes the, the plan of God and salvation, the gospel, and interprets it to us. So imagine a friend takes you to the movie theater, and uh, you're going to go see a movie, and the movie is God's plan for the whole world. That's what's, that's what's running. It's rated G. It's good. Good reviews. And you get in there and you start watching. And uh, you realize this whole thing is in Polish. And you're like, Polish? 
uh, well, I mean, I see the actors and I kind of get an idea for the plot line, but I, I really don't know what's going on. If you knew ahead of time that it was impulsive, you probably wouldn't spend any money on it, but you're there, so you're like, okay, well, I'm going to hear it out, but you don't understand. But now imagine your friend turns to you and go, that's okay. I know Polish, and I'm going to interpret it for you. So you can see and you can get the plot line, but you can also understand and enjoy. This is what Paul is literally saying the Spirit does. Even unbelievers, they see sort of the plot line. They get the information. It's not hard to understand the information of the gospel, but to truly know it and to truly love it and enjoy it, that's a work of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit does. Verse 13, and we impart this in words not taught by humans or taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual or, or interpreting spiritual truths to those who are filled with the Spirit. That's the idea. It can sound kind of confusing, but all that means is the Holy Spirit is the translator friend for the believer. He takes the gospel, and not only do we understand it, but we love it, and we rejoice in it. So if you have believed in the gospel, it's because the Spirit has interpreted for you in a spiritual way these truths and put in your heart to have good affections for them. Praise be to the Spirit. And when you preach the gospel, you know what you should be praying for? The Spirit to work in the heart of these people. It's not us. It's not our fancy preaching. It's the powerful gospel and the Holy Spirit that changes lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Hard truths sometimes, but good truths and reassuring truths. May you give us faithfulness to preach the gospel. May we not trust in our ability or our charisma or whatever, but may we trust in your powerful word, which you have graciously given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.